Greetings to each one in Jesus' name this morning as well, and welcome to our service. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. It was in the 1700s that John Newton lived. He was barely seven years old when his mother passed away. And his father remarried, but John never uh, really gained a close relationship with his father, and for sure not with his stepmother. And by the age of 11, John joined his father on a ship his father was a, a, a ship captain. Sometime there after that, John's father took an office job and, and came off the ship, and John continued to live a life of the rugged life on the sea. And at one point, his father decided to enroll him in a school, a, an upscale school in another country, and John found an excuse to go visit some relatives in uh, Europe somewhere. And... Uh, Fassigned himself, as we would say in Pennsylvania Dutch, or uh, spent more time there than he should have, delayed, uh, procrastinated, uh, and somewhat intentionally because he didn't want to go to the school where his father wanted to send him to. And he came back, and, and thus was kind of the life that John Newton lived, a life of um, rebellion, a life of sinfulness. Um, Actually, while he was visiting uh, relatives there in Europe, he became acquainted with a, a young lady who uh, took his heart, and he was smitten with her, didn't uh, marry her right away. But after a period of years, uh, John uh, became a ship captain himself, um, running a slave ship uh, back and forth, and was heavily involved in, in the slave trade. I think you probably all know this story. One night... Uh, at sea, when the waters were rough and things weren't looking too good, too too well, it looked like it might be the end. Uh, previous to this, John had been uh, started to read his Bible again. His mother, his birth mother, um, had was a Bible believing person, had read his Scripture to him. By now in John's life, he had started reading Scripture again, and and then also was reading a book, um, uh, the Imitations of Christ, I think it's called. I'm not familiar with it, and. Um, Things were stirring in his life, and this stormy night, when it looks like it was about all over by the time he realized what was going on, one sailor had already been washed overboard, John dedicated his life to the Lord. It didn't go all so well uh, immediately after that, but after some ups and downs, he kind of got to, he did get to a spot in his life where he completely surrendered his life to the Lord, and it was at that time that he, sometime after that, that uh, he penned the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. I better not quote, uh, try quoting this song. I better stop now or it's going to, I'll mess something up. But you, get the, you know the song and you get the message. John was ordained in the Anglican Church and was, a, was a, a, um, an advocate of singing simple hymns like Amazing Grace. At that era of time in the churches in England, 
they were um, singing psalms, slow, tedious psalms from songs from the psalms. Grace. What is grace? As I pondered uh, what to preach for a message this morning, my heart was drawn, mine was drawn to the thing of grace. And grace is, is a big subject. I'll admit before we start that I'm not going to plumb the depth of grace at all, but I hope I can whet our appetites. And as I pondered and meditated on grace, there's three aspects of grace that, that I think that the way it works as I see it. And you could sort of picture with me a car or a mechanical vehicle of some kind. There's a lot of moving parts, and those parts need to work together for that vehicle to work well. Grace, it seems to me, turns the wheels of redemption. Grace greases the bearings of relationship, and grace absorbs the shock of the realities of life. So let's look, first of all, at grace turning the wheels of redemption. Thank you, Floyd, for reading Ephesians chapter 2. And I think we would all do ourselves well. And I. So I'm kind of a person that I like to find a way that works. And, and I get settled in that way that works, and, and I'm just okay with that. And what I see with some tendencies is that I feel like as people we can, we can come to a place where we feel that we're there now. We've arrived, and if we don't um, continue to search and continue to grow, we stagnate. And I feel like there's been a generation before my generation. Um, my parents, for instance, left the Amish church uh, when I was uh, just a tyke, barely walking, and and we, we would consider my parents as first-generation Christians. Not that, and there's a fine line there, and we'll leave it at that. But through a desire to grow and to have a closer walk with the Lord, and, and, I, and I feel like there was an era of time there when there was a lot of um, desire, a lot of hunger, a lot of growth in our churches and amongst our people, and a lot of seeing ourselves as we are and realizing that we need a Savior in our I'm concerned sometimes that my generation, or myself in particular, has, has grown up. We've been taught the truths of Scripture. We've been taught salvation from little up. And so we, we think we get it. We think we understand it and don't really realize uh, who we are and how desperately we need it. <clears throat> we need redemption, as Ephesians 2 taught us. Mankind was created by God for a relationship with God. And as we know from the story of creation, this free and open relationship was severed when Adam and Eve sinned, disobeyed God and sinned, and they took that fruit. At that point in time, the relationship between God and man was hindered by sin and guilt. Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves. They hid from God. Uh, They couldn't freely communicate with him anymore. And ever after the fall, it was evident that the only way that this relationship could be restored was if sin was dealt with. And the only way to deal with sin was by the shedding of blood. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins. That's basic. That's settled and rooted. We see that all the way through the Old Testament 
and into the new as well, and through the new as well. And for several thousand years after creation, the only hope mankind had in restoring that relationship with God was the promise of a redeemer that God gave to Adam and Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. In the meantime, throughout the Old Testament, a covering for sin by continual bloodshed of animals was the only way to get anywhere near a living relationship with God. And we know the Old Testament account. Mankind, the children of God, were bound by the law, a law that they could never satisfy, a law that they could never attain to and they could never be good enough for. And Hebrews 11:13, I find it fascinating, tells us that the only thing that kept them going was that they were persuaded of a promise that they had not yet seen. They had an experience. They didn't know the fullness of the promise, but they were persuaded there was a promise. And this, is, this, this persuasion is evidenced, um, and perhaps it was learned through their feasts and ceremonies in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Finally, after thousands of years of anticipation, Romans 5, verse 6 tells us that at the right time, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He shed his blood. He met that need of bloodshed for sin. He satisfied the sin need. And mankind can now be redeemed back to God. <clears throat> Looking at Ephesians 2, I don't know if you have your Bibles open to there yet or not. You could open to Ephesians 2 if you don't. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, we, we were lost. We were without Christ. We were slaves to the devil. 2 verse 2, we walked in the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. Verse 12 tells us we were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that was us. That's us before redemption. That's us before salvation. We're lost. We're without hope. <clears throat> and we're without God. We're aliens. But verse 4 says, but God, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. <clears throat> Unger's Bible Dictionary in Defining Grace says, shares some of these thoughts. Mercy is the compassion of God that moves him to provide a savior Love is the motivation behind all that God does. God is a holy, just, and righteous God. And he cannot tolerate sin. We know that. We're taught that clearly from Scripture. But the blood of Jesus, praise God, the blood of Jesus satisfies the sin problem and activates the grace of God. And I don't understand fully how all this works. But according to what we see here in Ephesians 2 and, and other verses as well, we're saved by grace. The blood of Jesus Christ is shed. The, 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 the sin problem, the sacrifice for sin is satisfied. <clears throat> but it's grace that activates it. 
It's grace that makes it available to us. Hath raised us up together, verse 6, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Because all this hinges on the grace of God and the blood of Christ, it rules out any possibility of us earning it. We cannot earn it. We can't deserve it. We can't do enough of good to, to, to bring it onto our lives. It's a gift, and it's only a gift, and it's a gift that's given to us by the grace of God. It's by grace, verse 5, that we are saved. And verse 8, by grace ye are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Verses 9 and 10 explain why. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. If we could. We could, there's, we would run that risk and we probably actually would just all become proud and we would, there would be this thing of outdoing each other and trying to live better than the other one around me. But it's the grace of God that brings salvation to us and it's a gift. It's an undeserved, unearned gift. <clears throat> Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And so it leaves us with a question then, because we know that Scripture teaches us that what we do, that our works and how we live matter. How does that work, or how does that coincide then with grace, and grace, salvation being a free gift? Turn with me, and we'll look at some verses in Romans, Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6. Again, much to be said here about Sin and our walk with the Lord and and, uh, who we yield ourselves to. And in these chapters, in the book of Romans, we see a lot about how we are to live. And I think it helps us understand that, especially chapter 6, we can't earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, but there is something that we can do about it. And I'm going to read some verses here from Romans 5 and Romans 6. Romans 5, I'll start in verse 1 and 2 and then jump to verse 12. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, (coughs) by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more... The grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ hath, Christ hath abounded unto many. And I think it's something that you'll notice. Um, just pause here a moment. Um, 
it's not unusual when the Bible talks, mentions grace, that there's words like much more or abounding um, close by it. <clears throat> and here he's comparing how that through the offense of one, just because one person sinned, we all suffer from that. And if that's the case, then much more by the grace of God, by one man, Jesus Christ, uh, we can abound. Verse 16, not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the offense of one judgment came upon all, I'm sorry, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. <clears throat> For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That is, sin hath reigned unto death. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> I think I'll, I'll pause there. I'll make some more comments on some verses in chapter 6. But I think for the sake of time, I'll just uh, not read further. We're justified by faith in verse 1 of chapter 5. We have access to grace by faith. So there's this, there's this connection between the mercy and the love of God providing the sacrifice for us and grace making it available to us. And then faith, our faith, um, believing in what is available to us. We could even put it this way. It may be crude, but the car is built. The engine is running. Everything in its place. Grace is the gear shifter that puts the car in action, but faith is the driver that puts the gear shifter in forward. We have to choose by faith to accept this grace and this gift that is given to us. That is our work in this process. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it, but we can choose it, and we can give ourselves up to it. <clears throat> Verse 21 that I just read tells us that God's plan of redemption is much greater than the effects of sin. And then chapter 6 starts out with the question, so if sin, if grace abounds, then um, should we be free to sin? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Almost like as if we would continue in sin, it would give grace more opportunity to abound. Is that how we should do? And we know the answer. That no, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We're no longer controlled by sin. Sin has no dominion over us. Verse 4 and 5 talk about being buried with him and planted with him in the likeness of his death. The ESV here uses the phrase, we are united with him. Now that we've chosen by faith to accept the grace that God extends to us in the plan of salvation. We identify with him. We are united with him. 
and we're no longer controlled. We're, we're now separated. And that's where another thing, part of this whole process that we play, and it's, some of it's just simply decisions that we make in our minds of how to respond to life, how to respond to the things that come our way, where to place our focus, where to spend our time. Those are decisions that we make. Those are things that we do in this whole process. And even identifying with him is largely a thing that we do in our minds. Later in this chapter, it talks about yielding ourselves servants or whoever it is that we yield ourselves to. That's who will obey. That's who will follow And sort of gives us a picture of a, of a slave, a person who has chosen to, to follow a master, chosen to serve a master and identify with this master. And we do whatever they want us to do. <clears throat> we identify with them. And who we identify with, who we choose to follow, who we choose to yield ourselves to is what will become like. I like what verse 13 in the King James Version says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This is talking about our physical bodies, our beings, and yielding ourselves, and also our spirit and our soul, our, our our dedication, our commitment, who we yield ourselves to. I like what the ESV says, do not present your members to sin. It's almost like don't present yourselves to sin. So, so we have choices to make. We can present ourselves to God to serve him, or we can present ourselves to the devil to serve him and to follow him. And whichever path we choose affects and seals our eternal destiny. <clears throat> Again, I emphasize, we cannot earn salvation. It is a gift. We cannot live right enough to earn righteousness. And that's another thing, it's a marvel that we could talk about, is the whole thing that when we choose to serve him, when we choose to, by faith, to believe him, that he counts us as righteous, as sinless before him, a marvel. <clears throat> We cannot live right enough to earn righteousness. It is a gift. These are given to us by the grace of God. What we can do is choose who we present our members to. <clears throat> These passages here in Romans 5 and 6, and again, I just skimmed the surface, barely even skimmed the surface of all that's in these portions of Scripture. But they teach us that what that we choose, whether to move forward with God's grace or to choose our own way and blindly go backwards. <clears throat> Second aspect of grace I want to look at is it greases the bearings of our relationship. And turn to Second uh, Corinthians 8. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 7. I won't read this, but it's a story that, that Paul is, is relating to the Corinthian church. He's bringing the, the Macedonian church as an example to them. The Macedonian church was poor. They were persecuted. 
but it seemed that, but they had joy. They had an abundance of joy, it tells us in verse 2. And because of that abundance of joy, there was also a need in the church in, in uh, Jerusalem. And Paul was challenging the Corinthian church. If we read this, it seems like they had t- been there in Corinth before and started the process of taking a, a contribution for the church in Jerusalem. For some reason, it didn't materialize. Now they're back the second time. And he's saying, this is what the Macedonian church did. And I'm challenging you by what they did. They were poor. They were persecuted. But they had an abundance of joy in spite of their sufferings that they were experiencing. Their poverty and their persecution didn't rob their joy. And verse 4 indicates that they begged for the opportunity to give to their fellow believers in Jerusalem. And they did. And they, they pulled together an offering as poor as they were. And the abundance of joy in the grace of God spilled out in their desire to help others to help the church, and they gave liberally, uh, we're told in this story. They gave willingly, they gave cheerfully and liberally. We could say they were the hands and feet of Jesus. They were ministering grace to the church in Jerusalem. And can you imagine how the church in Jerusalem responded when this offering came to them um, from the church in Macedonia? An example of of living for the good of others. I appreciated um, Arlen's definition of love of agape love and I, I can't put it together now but it was something to the effect of uh, not considering my own good considering the good of those around me ahead of my own personal good and that's what we see happening here in the church of Macedonia they gave to the church in Jerusalem First Peter 4 has some thoughts as well as on sort of a different aspect first peter 4 7 through 11 i'll read these verses but the end of all things is at hand be therefore sober and watch unto prayer and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves for charity shall cover the multitude of sins use hospitality one to another without grudging as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Grace greasing the wheels of relationship. The encouragement here is to have fervent love. That's what Arlen was talking about in the devotional. Fervent love among ourselves. This is intentional and earnest love amongst the brotherhood. And he tells us here that it covers the multitude of sins. This means kind to imperfections. Kind and patient uh, toward faults. We, we tolerate things from those we love. We, it's just not talking about sin that bars us from heaven. It's talking about the, the, the relational grinds that we experience amongst each other. But when we have love, or when we even choose to have love, is the setting. It talks about um, fervent love among yourselves. And those words give the mean, intentional, and earnest love. <clears throat> 
it greases the relationship. You know, those bearings can get sandy sometimes. They can get gritty and they can get worn. And sometimes we need to just simply choose to love and extend grace to each other. And the setting is in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 10. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each of us realizing that it's God's grace that it was extended to us that allows us, that gives us the opportunity to experience salvation. And through the grace that's been extended to us, uh, let that grace flow out in our relationships <clears throat> to each other. Good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God is the idea of grace of God ex- expressing itself in, itself in many different ways, not limited to one particular way. And I think sometimes we, as uh, people, can feel like, well, I don't have much to offer. Um, and I, I can't be, I'm just not, I just don't have what it takes. I don't have much to offer. I can't, I, I don't think I'm making a difference to anyone. That's not the point. The point is that we give the gift that we have. And for that, we'll turn into Romans 12, which also sort of takes us into the last, the third section. Romans 12 covers, could fit in either one of the sections. Grace in our relationship with each other is, is what makes relationships function well and function smoothly. Grace also absorbs the shock of the reality of life. Sometimes difficulties come our way. Life is tough, and God's grace is there to absorb the shock of the realities of life. Romans 12, one of the things Romans 12 covers here is the different gifts that people have, which goes back to the, the last section that I was just talking about, and that each of us is given grace for the gift that God gives us. It's been said that God doesn't call the enabled, he enables the called. Verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, and it goes on to talk about the grace, the gifts. Each of us has a gift that's given to us, and that's the grace that we're given to work with, that gift. Not I can't work with your gift. We can develop and grow gifts within, each, within our lives, but each of us is given grace for the gift that God has given to us. <clears throat> but talking then about absorbing the harsh realities of life and how grace can, the grace of God does that for us. <clears throat> I'll read verses 1 through 6. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In a context of holy Christian living, then he says, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, And he teaches us some practical things of life, how to live. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man 
the measure of faith. Recognize that there's other gifts among us. We could go on in this chapter, verse 12 and verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor the evil. Cleave to the good. Be kindly affection one to another. Is the working of God in life. God gives us grace to meet the daily grind of life. Ephesians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12. I'll read a few verses there. Seven through ten talks more specifically about grace for a specific situation. The Apostle Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh. He begged God for three years to get rid of this, to take care of this thorn in the flesh. God did not take it away from him, but rather gave him grace to work with it. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, I'm sorry, I said three years, three times, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I don't know how this all works. Sometimes God's grace, when we're facing a difficult lives, evidences itself through other people. You all can be the hands and feet of Jesus to each other. <clears throat> and we've experienced that many times in our lives. Something about it. And sometimes God just gives us the grace to, to get through. We have portions of scripture like Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, gives us a picture of God gently carrying those who are, are struggling, those who are carrying heavy burdens. Behold, the Lord will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Verses 29 through 31 at the end of that chapter. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. God's grace carrying us through difficult times. <clears throat> I'm sure that I've said this story before, but back when the night we discovered Dad's tumor in his brain, I'll never forget the doctor that came into the room. I never saw him again. I haven't saw him since. Um, But he said, God's grace will be available, but you're going to have to look for it. And I never forgot that aspect of grace. God's grace will be available, he said, but you're going to have to look for it. This was before we had a diagnosis. We had no idea um, for sure what all was ahead of us. You have to look for it. And I think that when it comes to recognizing grace, um, probably there's several ways that we respond to it. There's some that are unassuming and oblivious and and miss it because we don't look for it or don't expect it. Or sometimes the unassuming see it all over because they don't expect it. And then there's those who expect it, but they miss it because it shows up 
in unexpected ways. And I think we need to be careful with this one because there are times when others want to minister to us. But we're all fallen human beings and we all don't do so well always with it, even when we have the best of intentions. And so if we're expecting God's grace, but it doesn't, but it comes in a different way than what we expect to see it, we might miss it. <clears throat> or if we look for it and expect it and accept it the way God presents it to us, we're inspired, we're encouraged, and we're strengthened to move on in our walk with the Lord. <clears throat> in closing, I'll just leave these few thoughts with you. Grace turns the wheels of redemption. It greases the bearings of relationships. It absorbs the shock of the realities of life. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. But we can, by faith, choose it. And it will affect our relationship with God and with our fellow men. Let's kneel for prayer. <clears throat>